all of us should be willing to pay whatever taxes are necessary to enable efficient government to improve or expand any essential service. You have a beautiful tax return. The nicest one I've ever seen. Okay, folks, but remember your manners. No stampeding. Walk slow, like you do when you come to pay your taxes. Hi, I'm Stephen Dean. This is The Tax Maven. Here we are going to, in each episode, talk to our tax maven, who will be a person proving Archimedes' point that a single person with a lever long enough and a place to put it can change the world. The lever in this case is tax, and the place to put it is here at NYU Law. I'm Stephen Dean, the faculty director of the Graduate Tax Program at NYU Law. I'm here today with Katie Pratt, who is professor of law and Sayer McNeil Fellow at Loyola Law School. Thanks for having me. Among the many subjects Professor Pratt has examined in her work, including her 2004 Cornell article, Inconceivable, Deducting the Costs of Fertility Treatment, those questions where tax law and healthcare intersect have proven particularly important. For quite some time, the IRS in Taxpayer Publication 502 has stated that medical care, deductible medical care, includes the cost of treatment to quote, overcome your inability to have children, close quote, including in vitro fertilization. So uh, uh, taxpayers have been deducting those expenses uh, for many, many years. It's pretty clear the IRS had in mind different sex married couples when uh, it, it specified the deduction for IVF costs. And in a series of cases, um, the IRS has taken the position that men, uh, in all of the three cases litigated, unmarried men, cannot deduct the cost of IVF or egg donation or surrogacy. The IRS has also litigated the question of whether surrogacy expenses are deductible by different sex married couples who have experienced infertility. In both of the litigated cases, the IRS settled the case favorably to the taxpayer, but in neither case was there a reported decision. So the only authority that exists uh, is in the context of single men trying to deduct IVF egg donation and surrogacy expenses, and in all three cases, courts denied the expenses, um, both in the tax court and in a district court, and all those cases were appealed and affirmed. I told a group earlier today, um, of all the articles I've ever written, this is the article about which I received the most correspondence. I receive um, email inquiries and uh, phone inquiries because there are a lot of advisors out there and a lot of patients who actually don't know what position to take on the return. So um, my sense is that most advisors tell the taxpayers to take the deduction for all of the expenses. Uh, exactly what's going on uh, at the IRS is hard to say, but I did check the IRS manual to see what it said, and it refers uh, agents to publication 502, the taxpayer publication which is a little strange because, of course, in terms of the hierarchy of authorities, uh, a taxpayer publication is at the very, 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 very bottom. 
it's not authority. Um, nonetheless, tax, taxpayers are relying on it. Their advisors are relying on it, um, although legally they're not entitled to rely on it. And I guess uh, maybe it's helpful to take a step back and think about how uh, we get to this place. So uh, uh, under the tax law, uh, you're allowed to take certain deductions for obviously business expenses, uh, uh, which are needed to produce the income you generate. Mm -hmm. So that makes perfect mm -hmm. sense logically, economically. Uh, but there are also deductions the taxpayers are allowed to take that relate to just their personal lives. Um, and one of those uh, personal deductions is uh, good old section 213 mm -hmm. um, that allows you to take a deduction for certain medical expenses. And the question that we're grappling with here is one that really should not be as hard as it is, one would imagine, whether these expenses are medical costs related to uh, uh, the Section 213 deduction. Uh, what, why is it so hard to know whether uh, these things doctors are doing for patients are medical or not? Well, that's a good question. So um, let's go back to 1972 to uh, a famous article uh, defending the 213 deduction um, in which the author said uh, that medical expenses are not consumption, that they are involuntary expenditures. If you're suffering from arterial bleeding, you don't really have much choice about whether to incur the expense of medical care. So the idea is if those are involuntary expenses, they should be reflected uh, that a taxpayer's ability to pay is changed by involuntary expenditures. So if taxpayer A has 100,000 of income and no medical expenses, taxpayer B has 100,000 of income and 20,000 of medical expenses, and taxpayer C has 80,000 of income, the taxpayer B is more like taxpayer C than taxpayer A. So that provides a justification for allowing a deduction for unreimbursed medical expenses. So the question then is, under that ability to pay rationale, uh, what sorts of expenses are deductible and which are not? And uh, that, that has been litigated many, many, many times. So I explain in uh, a series of articles that um, there are various categories of cases. So one category of cases involves expenditures for items that, uh, that people purchase without medical reasons. For example, um, I go on vacation with no medical reason at all. So if my doctor tells me you're very stressed out, you must take a vacation, is my vacation now a medical expense? So the answer is no, no, that that is the sort of expenditure that uh, uh, is incurred to promote the taxpayer's general well-being. It is not a medical expense. Um, what about if I have asthma and I buy a vacuum cleaner with a HEPA filter? Well, initially we would classify that as a consumption expense, but if I can show that my doctor said I would have fewer asthma attacks if I bought a vacuum cleaner with a HEPA filter, well, then that expense moves from the category of non-deductible consumption into deductible medical care. So a lot of the difficult cases... Um, are cases in which the court is trying to figure out whether the taxpayer is abusing the medical expense deduction by attempting to reclassify what would normally be a personal consumption expense as a medical expense. Then there is a separate category 
um, that is what I refer to as inherently medical expenses. So these are um, hospital expenses, surgical expenses, office visits with doctors, uh, uh, services provided by medically licensed professionals. So um, the cases uh, refer to these as inherently medical expenses. So uh, our starting assumption is that these are deductible medical expenses. This is medical care. Uh, and the category of expenses that is then taken out of inherently medical expenses is uh, the category for cosmetic surgery expenses. Because in 1990, Congress amended 213 to provide that uh, cosmetic surgery and similar procedures are not medical care. And cosmetic surgery and uh, similar procedures are procedures that are primarily intended to change the taxpayer's appearance, but not the taxpayer's functioning. In other words, they don't address a disease or condition. So um, the legislative history gives as an example, breast augmentation surgery is cosmetic surgery, so the expenses would not be medical care, but breast reconstruction surgery following mastectomy uh, would not be cosmetic surgery because those expenses are incurred to restore normal functioning. Professor Pratt's research on the taxation of fertility treatments was spurred by an incident that she remembers quite clearly. What started me writing on the topic was a debate on the tax prof listserv. A senior tax professor said, my son and his wife incurred these expenses for IVF, egg donation, and surrogacy because of medical infertility. What does everyone think about uh, whether they can deduct these expenses as medical expenses? And... Um, and three uh, men on the listserv immediately responded, non-deductible. This is like buying a Gucci handbag. This is simple. And I thought, I don't think it's like buying a Gucci handbag. I think of it quite differently. So that's what got me started on the whole I, thing. I can, I can see why that might get you started. Yes, yes. So, um, of course, we, we know in the tax area there's an old case that says uh, – that the cost of childcare is not an ordinary and necessary business expense, um, even if it enables a secondary wage earner to go out and earn a living because the decision about whether to have a child is an inherently personal um, decision. So um, I guess the position uh, of uh, the man on the listserv was that you can lead a perfectly normal life without having children and that having a child is a personal decision. Therefore, medical treatment to have a child is a consumption expenditure. So uh, I argue that um, reproductive functioning is part of normal biological functioning. And I cite to cases under the Americans with Disabilities Act, like Bragdon versus Abbott. So um, I argue that even though some people lead perfectly normal lives without children, they decide not to have children, um, and that's a choice, that the vast majority of adults want to have children, and um, if they are unable to do so without medical assistance, that that medical assistance is medical care for purposes of 213. And I should point out that 213 is sort of a blunt instrument. It's just, it's binary. There are no gray areas. 
Um, so either an amount is medical care or it is not. Those are the only two choices. So um, there's uh, no nuance in the definition. So I, I argue that reproductive medical care is medical care. So if it is inherently medical, then it is within the 213 definition of medical care, in my view. And that could be by broadly construing the term disease under the first part of the definition, um, or it could be um, by reading the structure or function prong to include care that is performed on a third party for the taxpayer. So care of a surrogate uh, by an intended parent would be treated as, as care of the intended parent. So I'm going to change gears a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. So I... Uh, you have continued to write on this topic, and you have a relatively recent article uh, that is really uh, interesting, and I think it would be interesting to a lot of folks out there. Um, and I'm going to segue to that article by asking you about uh, something called reproductive binarism. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is reproductive binarism? How does that help us understand uh, maybe the direction we're going to be headed in the future? Well, uh, there is an argument that... Um, uh, the only people who should be allowed to have children are the people who uh, are capable of doing so because they are in a heterosexual relationship. In other words, that the biological mechanics um, of reproduction have implications for who should be allowed to form a family. Um, now, as it turns out, family law is way ahead of the tax law in trying to resolve um, what has happened in the context of assisted reproductive technology. So there are all sorts of permutations of parents, you know, uh, um, people who are not uh, biologically related to a child but assume a parenting role or adoptive parents or genetic children, uh, and so on. So family law has had to resolve a lot of these issues. And family law has moved away from uh, binarism to say that uh, what is critical to the evaluation of the legal consequences of family formation and parenting is the intention of the intended parents. So I'm arguing that that approach could be applied in the tax context as well. So I cite the work of uh, uh, a constitutional scholar uh, who writes in this area, Courtney Cahill. She argues that under the Obergefell case uh, that family formation should be treated as a right of same-sex couples uh, and that we should reject the uh, reproductive binarism and say uh, that what is critical is not the biological gendered mechanics of reproduction, but the intention to parent. And that should drive um, how we treat uh, reproductive care. So that is relevant in the tax context. And 
what would what uh, what conclusion would that re- lead you to in the tax area? So if you were to uh, reject reproductive binarism, uh, understanding that what is paramount is the intention of the would-be parents, uh, what sort of conclusion would that lead you on the tax front? Well, currently, I think the strongest argument for uh, classifying reproductive care expenses as as medical care would be in the context of medical infertility. But that's focusing specifically on the biological inability to bear children. So I'm arguing that that should not be the only consideration, that the the importance of family formation um, is important enough that um, reproductive binarism should not be uh, the sole criteria for uh, deductibility. So um, I argue that uh, intended parents, uh, including those suffering from medical infertility and those who are, to use a term coined by Lisa Ikimoto, disfertile because of sexual orientation, um, that they both should be allowed to deduct the cost of inherently medical care that enables them to form a family. And this sounds like it might require more than just a different interpretation of the existing statutory uh, framework. Uh, what would you say would be a, an appropriate solution? Well, um, a court could get there mm. under the current language. They could interpret the term disease under the first prong of the medical care definition to um, to mean any inherently medical care. Uh, for 70 years, the, the courts have interpreted disease to include many things we don't think of as disease, including uh, congenital defects, traumatic injuries, um, uh, conditions for which uh, patients seek medical care. So the term disease is and always has been construed very broadly. So a court could construe disease broadly enough to encompass medical reproductive care, including assisted reproductive technologies. But um, I think that probably what would be required for clarification would be amendment of Section 213 to specifically provide that inherently medical care, uh, care provided in hospitals, operating rooms, and doctor's offices, and so on, that those inherently medical expenses are medical care for tax purposes unless they are for cosmetic surgery. And we would keep the current definition of cosmetic surgery. And I believe that would approximate what should be the results under 213. Section 213, written by Congress to ensure that taxpayers burdened by health care expenses should not be treated unfairly by the tax system, represents only one way in which tax and health intersect. Professor Pratt explains why Congress may one day need to get into the business of regulating or taxing your favorite soft drink. My interest in the crossover between tax and health extends beyond the 213 deduction. Uh, so I've been following um, public health proposals to um, tax sodas and other sugar-sweetened beverages and regulatory proposals 
to reduce uh, the consumption of sugary drinks for about a decade. Uh, so I wrote an article a while back and said, um, here are the potential normative justifications for um, a sugary drink tax. And the article was called The Constructive Critique of uh, Normative Justifications for Sugary Drink Taxes. So I went through the arguments and shot down some of them and suggested some alternative rationales. And the ultimate conclusion in that article was that uh, targeting sugary drinks, while understandable from a public health perspective or a nutritional perspective, uh, was too narrow. And what we should be doing is going after unhealthy diets. So I proposed stoplight labeling, so red, yellow, green on the front of the package. And um, if the good is a red label, it would be subject to uh, a junk food excise tax. If it's yellow, there would be no tax or subsidy. And if it's green, there would be a subsidy. So my argument was broader. And to my knowledge, the only jurisdiction in the US that has adopted this proposal is the Navajo Nation. <laughs> but um, obviously, uh, sugary drink taxes um, have been uh, enacted all over the world. Uh, and have been shown empirically to reduce the consumption of sugary drinks. And uh, a number of jurisdictions in the United uh, States have experimented with sugary drink regulation and taxes. Um, I followed the New York City sugary drink portion cap uh, litigation with great interest and uh, went for the argument in the New York Court of Appeals in Albany um, and was quite fascinated. Um, I think that um, that portion cap could have potentially been done in a way that would have been upheld, but um, I'll, I'll just give you an example. The, uh, the portion cap was a 16 ounces that, you know, restaurants uh, would be limited to serving sugary drinks in, in, in portions of 16 ounces. And it turns out that the, um, the I guess it's the half liter size, um, which is very, very commonly sold in, um, in food establishments in New York City, is 16.9 ounces. So the, um, the public health uh, regulators' unfamiliarity with the market they were trying to regulate um, resulted in a regulation that arguably was arbitrary and capricious. So um, I do think there could have been ways to do it that might have passed muster. Um, and uh, there, there are regulatory developments both at the local level and at the state level. Um, for example, at the state level, um, the food and beverage industry uh, is now trying to bypass sort of liberal uh, health-minded cities by going straight to the state legislature and having the state enact legislation that prohibits localities from taxing uh, sugary drinks. Uh, so that has happened uh, uh, with increasing 
frequency. So ultimately, we may need a federal resolution of the issue. Um, there are justifications for uh, nudging people on diet, certainly not prohibiting the ability to eat unhealthy foods or drink unhealthy beverages, but um, if you will, you know, sort of a finger on the scale, no pun intended. Uh, and I think that, that these could pass muster. And the, the, the sugary drink taxes have shown that there can be very significant public health benefits from reducing added sugar. Someone once asked me, how, how can you describe uh, your scholarship? And I said, well, my scholarship is trying to build bridges between people who don't usually speak to one another and who speak different languages. So I love to go, I'm a member of the American Public Health Association, and I love to go to public health meetings where they throw around terms like externalities. Oh, we'll justify sugary drink taxes, you know, because of the externalities. And I say, you know, hold the phone. An externalities argument backfired on public health advocates in the cigarette context because it doesn't work out exactly the way you think it does. So there's a very famous episode that I think you're referring to. Uh, would you tell uh, our listeners about that? About tobacco yeah. taxes, yes. Well, for years, public health advocates said we should have very, very significant uh, taxes on tobacco because of the externalities that smokers impose on non-smokers. And by externalities, we mean uncompensated costs that smokers impose on non-smokers. And I think we can all imagine those fairly easily, um, that smokers uh, consume more medical care. They, you know, get get sicker more often and have smoking-related illnesses, and those of us who don't smoke subsidize the care of smokers. And that is true. But what public health advocates did not realize is that smokers tend to die right about the time they would start collecting retirement benefits. So there is an almost completely offsetting subsidy from uh, smokers to non-smokers through retirement benefits. So when a study was actually done, this is the fam famous Manning study, which has been replicated and tweaked various times since, uh, it turns out the externalities from tobacco are actually fairly small. Uh, and a number of papers have updated that and you know, adjusted various pieces of it, but the conclusion stands. And then add a new piece to it, um, the economist Gruber and Kosegi said, all right, so let's give up on externalities for tobacco. Let's look at internalities. So those are costs that the present self is, is imposing on the future self uh, without you know, properly taking into account, um, you know, in effect, the discount rate. And Gruber and Kosegi concluded, uh, that the internal costs of smoking are on the order of $24 a pack. So way higher than the external costs of smoking. So um, I argue in, in the first paper on uh, soda and junk food taxes that there potentially is a, a very good internalities argument for regulating or taxing um, unhealthy diet which would include consumption of sugary drinks. 
Well, a lot of food for thought for our listeners. Well. <laughs> Terrible pun. All right, so I've asked you about a lot of uh, a lot of things you know a lot about, uh, and now I'm going to ask you another kind of question, uh, one that you may not know the answer to. You might, but you really have no reason to. Um, in fact, uh, the reason I'm asking this question specifically uh, is uh, because the article that I drew it from uh, comes from a man you may know, uh, Ted Sito. Have you heard this name before? <laughs> uh, he wrote an article along with uh, Sandy Buhai. Yes, uh, yes. And um, so I'm going to ask you the question, and then I'll uh, explain what it is. And of course, um, the stakes here are quite high. If you get the question right, you're going to get this beautiful uh, NYU Law Graduate Tax Program pencil. Long uh, have I coveted. The so, NYU purple pencil. This is this is your chance. I mean, your your roots got, are really deep here, so I can imagine <laughs> how much this would mean to you. I'll put it right here so you can watch it as you as you think about the question, not to make you nervous. Oh, it's rolling around. All right. So the question is: um, sometimes the income tax uh, actually doesn't impose much of a tax on even people with very high incomes. Uh, so in 1969, largely the urging of one person. Congress created a second shadow tax designed to ensure uh, that at least some tax would fall on those with high incomes. So the question is, who uh, did the urging? Uh, so who successfully urged Congress to act? And the three choices are A, Leona Helmsley, B, President Richard Nixon, or C, Stanley Surrey. <clears throat> well, of course, as a tax person, I want to say Stanley Surrey. Um... So are we discussing the AMT? Uh, say the question again. So uh, the question is, uh, in 1969, largely the urging of one person, Congress created a second shadow tax okay. zone. At the urging of one person. Well, I have to say sorry. You are correct. The pencil <laughs> is yours. Uh, <laughs> so you. I'll read you just a little bit of a quote from uh, Ted and Sandy's article. Uh, so uh, this is uh, disability. Yes. So after the I know so you the pen pen law review exactly. Um, yes. So this is from uh, Ted Cito and Sandy Buhai's article: Tax and Disability, Ability to Pay, and the Taxation of Difference, mm -hmm. uh, in the Pen Law Review uh, from 2006. Uh, and uh, the context is that after the Treasury Secretary uh, uh, announced uh, that 155 high-income taxpayers had paid no income tax, and this is quoting from uh, their article, uh, largely at Surrey's urging. In 1969, Congress enacted a parallel tax system, the alternative minimum tax, uh, which works from theoretical income. It then takes exclusions and deductions computed under rules that are often different from the regular tax rules. Uh, and of course, uh, Lena Helmsley uh, may have helped in her way, mm -hmm. um, but is most famous for the quote, only little people, only the little people pay taxes. So Yes, yes, that's why I asked you to repeat the question. Because Absolutely. as a result of, that could have been Leona Helmsley, right? <laughs> only little people pay taxes. And I was waiting to hear the word urging. And then yes, it had exactly. to be Stanley Surrey. That's right. <laughs> yes. So he's responsible for a lot of the, the good things in our tax system. Yes. Uh, and many would say this is uh, yet another example. Yes, yes. So I really appreciate uh, you joining us today. Yeah. Uh, Katie Pratt uh, from Loyola Law School in Los Angeles uh, and a longtime member of our community, both mm -hmm. as a student um, and as a teacher. Uh, so we're glad to have you back. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be back here at NYU. Thank you for listening to The Tax Maven. Uh, and I also want to give a very special thank you to those that helped make the podcast possible. Patrick Kelly, Joe Rivera, Greg Addison, Rebecca Carmichael, Jill Racklin, and Anthony Pietrangelo. And thank you, Rachel Burns. 
The NYU Law Graduate Tax Program has been the premier place to learn about tax law for the past 75 years. So please visit us on the web, visit our Graduate Tax Program website to see the different programs we offer, both in person and online, both for lawyers and non-lawyers. Take a look at what we offer, uh, and I hope you consider joining us. And now, we like to end each of our episodes with a quote about taxes read by one of our students. Today's tax quote comes from Alex Pettengel from New York City. There is an ancient belief that the gods love the obscure and hate the obvious. Without benefit of divinity, modern men of similar persuasion draft provisions of the Internal Revenue Code. Section 341 is their triumph. Please email us at info at taxmavenpodcast.com if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. And if you are a student uh, and want to email us a recording of your favorite tax quote, please email it there as well. Thanks for tuning in.